0: Welcome back and good evening to everybody listening. This is Tribal Theocrat Live. I'm Christian Gray. And tonight is August 17th, 2013. And our guest is a return engagement. He's been on three times before talking about really all things cops. And he's here tonight to talk about special operations and intelligence. And we'll just get right into it. Robert? How are you?
1: I'm doing fine. Glad to be back.
0: Great. It's good to have you back. Hopefully everybody in the chat room can let us know if our voice levels are okay. But uh, Robert Fingelfin is our guest from North Texas. How are things down there?
1: Not quite as hot as it used to be a a week or two ago, so I'm happy with that.
0: That's good. Things have been a little bit chilly for Midwest standards and in July and early August, but they're starting to heat back up a little bit.
1: Send some of that cool weather our way, please.
0: Right. Well, I guess barring any no-knock SWAT raids on either of our houses, we'll just get started.
1: (laughs) Well, what I'm hoping we can cover tonight, and uh, may not be able to cover it all, may have to come back for a second round for the last section, but uh, in part one I'm hoping uh, for us to look at intelligence agencies and units. And, um uh, hopefully we can do that in 30 minutes. If not, it may, it may take a little bit longer. There's a lot of material there. I've tried to call, you know, rid it of any extra persiflage, but, uh, there's a certain core amount of information that has to be covered. Then after that, we'll talk, uh, special operations units. And then lastly, crit- uh, critique and solutions. There's a part four that, uh, you know, it kind of looms in the background like a phantom. And part four is about one uh, of one these that people that you meet at gun shows or just in your normal day-to-day living that you know claim to be Navy SEALs or CIA operatives. One of these are everywhere, and it's kind of an interesting topic itself. But uh, if we have to come back for a second section, a second time to handle the solutions, maybe we can talk about one of these then. But Wannabes are ubiquitous, so At any rate, part of my th- talk tonight is to help uh, expose wannabes and to deal uh, with fake and real operators, uh, signal intelligence bullies, SIGINT bullies as sometimes they're called, and just so people can have a b- better navigate the subject. This is sort of a survey, like a survey course, or survey book. It gives enough resources, I think, to where if people want to pursue the topic more in depth, they can. If they don't, well, then, um, you know, they can look at the parts that interest them. it also gives a, a pretty good bibliography, and then there's um, even movies that are kind of pertinent to the issue as, as well. Uh, before we get into the the actual meat of it, I, I do want to say that that exposure of evil doesn't always necessarily equate to change or ending a program or, our institution, that along these lines, there were various U.S. government investigations into the CIA and National Security Agency back in the mid-1970s. They went pretty in-depth. Uh, Frank, Senator Frank Church was one that led a lot of the, uh, I believe he led the Senate side of the investigations. At any rate, it didn't accomplish anything, unfortunately. It did uh, leave some of the dirty laundry out in the open, which we're, we're glad to have, but I'm a little bit skeptical of what Edward Snowden's doing, if it will accomplish anything or not. I'm, I'm glad I applaud his courage and his and his sacrifice, but I just don't know if, if exposing evil is a—it's uh, not is sufficient in and of itself to to bring it down. But it's part of what we have to do. Uh, we just don't want to fall into the trap that trap that some uh, like say John Birchers or. Other people who are revisionists think if we just shine the light on these people, they'll fold over. They won't, but we got to shine the light regardless. <clears throat> well, the in- intelligence groups. The first thing we need to d- discuss a little bit is just the nature of intelligence. That, that people like to say, well, you know, intel this, intel that. Well, what what is intelligence? They're primarily the intelligence of military nature would deal with, say, uh, the number of tanks that. The old Soviet Union might have had, or how many divisions did they have? The technical intelligence, military and otherwise, would include topics like the top speed of a fighter aircraft, uh, depth of armor on a tank, how certain types of microprocessors are made. Then there's geographical intelligence, which would include depths of harbors, locations of roads, railroad capacity. Organizational intelligence. The way other countries organize their government or their military, it's actually, um it can be a very cru- crucial, uh, bit of information to have. Economic intelligence pertain- pertains to the ability of another country's ability to secure more monies to fight a long war, stability of their economy, their manufacturing ability, their ability to secure raw materials and produce goods. And then lastly, personal intelligence. And this is something that the Israeli Mossad really um, is quite good at, is is figuring out the liabilities and strengths of national leaders and how suitable they are for blackmailing. Now, there is a time value that's placed on intelligence, too, that we have short-term tactical intelligence and then there's strategic long-term intelligence, the strategic intelligence, if you were wanting to protect it, you would use a very high level of security, um, such as like a one time pad or a highly developed cipher or code word. So for instance, if you were wanting to tell a a, a nuclear submarine to launch um ballistic missile submarine, if you wanted to tell it to launch its sea launcher ballistic missiles, that would be a highly high level strategic um bit of intelligence requiring a high level of communication security. On something on the other end of and tactical intelligence, uh, communication security, say the Navajo code talkers of World War II in the Pacific or voice scramblers. Say, um, the type of data that would fit under would be, uh, what time does a supply flight land at, uh, at Khe during the Vietnam War when the siege of Ksan was going? If that was tactical intelligence, it didn't really have a long lifespan. And it would, its own, and its importance was nothing compared to say of strategic intelligence. Also, there's the area known as counterintelligence, and this has historically been the FBI's area, not the CIA's, at least domestically. And defensive counterintelligence would involve say like hunting a mole. A mole is a, a long-term operative or spy that's placed into an organization. Um, offensive counterintelligence, on the other hand, would be, uh, counter-espionage work, such as, say, finding, um, some of the Mossad Sionim network operatives before they can send valuable information back to Israel. And I'll talk about the Sionim a little bit more later on, but they are basically volunteer Jews, um, that have volunteered their services to, to help the, the Mossad and to help Israel in various ways. They work in a lot of different industries in this country and basically send free R and D back to Israel, as well as a lot of other things that the them are useful for. And we have just a little bit more uh perfunctory information before we get into the heart of things in the National Security Agency since it's been um so much on the top of the news here recently that'll be our first topic, but the a little bit more of the perfunctory information Uh, clearances what type of clearances exist and you'll have people once again like wannabes Oh, I have a top-secret clearance or I have a super super top secret clearance well amongst the Department of Defense there's three basic uh, clearances confidential secret and top secret and I used to have back in my Air Force years I held a secret conference uh, secret clearance as did probably, I don't know, 25% of the Air Force. I mean, a lot of people had a secret clearance. Uh, Top secret you would find in more um, sensitive intelligence, such as uh, electronic warfare. All those fellows had to have top secret clearances. Everyone who's in Delta Force has a top secret clearance. The most sensitive one of all, though, is a top secret clearance with an additional clearance added onto it called the s c i clearance, which stands for sensitive compartmentalized information and this requires a polygraph to get the s c i clearance added onto the top secret the national security Agency and the Central Intelligence Agency both require s c i clearances for most of its of its work so if someone says t s slash s c i then you know that's pretty much the highest uh, Department of Defense clearance you can have. The Department of Energy uses their own uh, nomenclature for clearances, their highest one being called the Q clearance, and this enables people to engage in a variety of research or work with nuclear weapons. The Defense Security Services, the DSS, is the organization that goes around and does background checks for people. Background checks. For people who are needing security uh, clearances, unfortunately, they they really only provide a mild degree of protection since the uh, DC, uh, defense security services can't discriminate based on homosexuality, uh, Jewish origin, uh, you know, other types of anti-Christian religion, etc. So it's pretty limited in a lot of the things it can look for. Uh, unfortunately, it's uh, little data you hear here, um, here and there is that people with more uh, backgrounds like we have, it's becoming you know, somewhat harder for, uh, for some of them to have that clearance. Other times, people don't have a problem with it at all. Um, about nine years ago, which was the last time I was working in a place that required clearances, uh, a top-secret clearance would cost the company that needed it about $35,000. and would The average time frame was about nine months. I mean, that could vary a good bit. But security clearances, I mean, once you have them, they are basically like a form of occupational licensing. That There are certain engineering jobs you simply will not get without a top-secret clearance or a secret clearance. And in some instances, you can have pretty bad skills, but if you have a clearance, then that's what's important because you can start to work right away and the company doesn't have to pay 35000 to have your clearance done as well as pay you for nine months to maybe sit around and you know, play solitaire all day long. Uh, unfortunately there has been an issue of of clearance creepage and classification creepage over time it, when we think about George W Bush and the amount of um where well, they would use overclassification to control information that they did not want people having access to so they would just take a big stamp boom you know secret boom top secret um uh, this is obviously not how the system's supposed to work but nevertheless it's how it has it ended up panning out uh, clearance creepage is, is where, say, for instance, in the past, at one position would have been fine with a secret clearance. Well, over time, it came to be where a top secret clearance was, uh, required. And, uh, I gave the original three clearances that the Department of Defense used, which was the confidential secret and top secret. Well, due to clearance creepage, the confidential clearances, worth practically nothing now. And I'm not even sure if it's still given if the uh, secret clearance hasn't become the uh, initial uh, clearance. There are also um, small people try to bury um, thinking people or other folks just try to intimidate them by using acronyms that are foreign to them. And I I really can't stand when people do this. And the, the wannabes and the and the operators and the spec ops and what on they're, they're some of the worst in the world. And with Wikipedia, of course, a lot of these acronyms are a lot easier to run down. But you know, some of the most common ones you'll hear, uh, I'll just go over here in just a couple of minutes. HUMINT, uh, that's spelled H-U-M-I-N-T. HUMINT, that stands for Human Intelligence. SIGINT, which is going to be a major part of our talk tonight. Signal Intelligence that's what the National Security Agency does. You'll also sometimes hear used uh, the acronym COMINT, which stands for Communications Intelligence, but it's kind of taken a back seat to um, signal intelligence. SIGINT seems to be kind of the preferred acronym. There is, for people involved in electronic warfare, uh, a type of intelligence called ELINT, which is electronic intelligence. Um, information on enemy radars would fit under this classification. OSINT, uh, O S I N T, that's open source intelligence, things like newspapers, blogs, magazines, things that are out in the public that people can acquire. And really that is the most important source of intelligence there is, particularly for strategic intelligence, but it's not very glamorous, so people tend to, you know, downplay it somewhat. Uh, image intelligence, uh, IMINT, and uh radar intelligence, radiant. Uh, For spy satellites, a lot of their data is image collection, either optical or radar collected or infrared. So, um, radint is a type of of image intelligence. There is um, measurement and signatures intelligence. This could be something as simple as a a piece of a, of a Soviet ICBM that fell off in the Pacific when it was being tested or, or measuring the plume trail as it flew across the sky to find out, you know, how, how long its first stage burns for. Uh, a lot of measurement and signature, signature intelligence is stuff that doesn't fit neatly under uh, image intelligence or, sig- or signal intelligence. Uh, two more um, categories that are not types of intelligence, but you'll hear the term COMSEC stands for communication security and uh, that's part of the national security Agency's mission. They intercept signals, but they also are tasked by the u s government to provide uh, secure communications and then opsEC, which is operational security, so like you know my last name is that I'm using Finglefin is obviously not my real last name, I'm using that as a as a type of operational security um Three Just a couple of books and videos on the introductory level of intelligence, there was a really good video, uh, or documentary, excuse me, put out by the BBC called 1983, The Brink of of Apocalypse. And this was about a 1983 NATO exercise held in Europe called uh, Able Archer. The Soviet Union really thought we were gearing up for a first strike, a nuclear first strike and that got them thinking about a nuclear first strike. It's not very well known um, how close we came to nuclear war with the Able Archer exercise, but um the BBC did a really uh, outstanding job with this and I think the the program shows the potential consequences of misleading or misinterpreted intelligence. Uh, another a, a book called What If Strategic Alternatives to the Outcome of World War 2 very intelligence-heavy, once again, um, how intelligence can tip battles one way or the other.
2: <clears throat> Even
1: b- a better book on that subject is uh, Military Intelligence Blunders by John Hughes Wilson. Uh, just He gets down to very specifics on where military intelligence bl- uh, blunders have cost wars. And lastly, it's kind of a, a fun book, and it pertains more to the National Security Agency, but not as a history, but it's... Uh, Called the Codebook: The Science of Secrecy from Ancient Egypt to Quantum Cryptography, by Simon Singh. And uh, I know you might hear the last name Singh and think, you know, well, he's an Indian, he's not going to be able to write. Well, actually, he does. He's a very entertaining writer. It's a history and an excellent, excellent explanation of cryptography. So, if you don't want to deal with a, you know, exploratory text on cryptography that deals with just Oh, say mathematics or um, computer code for it. This is really the book to read, and uh, I really enjoyed it a lot. It is a, not a, a history of the NSA, but just a, a book on on cryptography. So, um excuse my talking so fast, but I'm trying to cover a lot of material really quickly. Uh, is there any are there any questions or anything from the chat room right now? Uh, while I take a quick drink.
0: So far, no questions. I think we're we're doing good, and I, I do agree that if we do have a hang-up, we'll just come back for part three in a different segment, but we'll, we'll, we'll try to get through as much as we can.
1: Okay. Well, um, the, going on then to our first intel agency is the uh, National Security Agency, or I'll just refer to it as the NSA. Uh, let me give a couple of quick anecdotes, my own personal anecdotes with the NSA that – uh I first encountered the NSA in my line of work back in 1988 when I was in the Air Force and the aircraft we used had an encryption ability, it was called the KY-58 was the encryption module and that was designed, The at least the core specifications were designed by the National Security Agency as part of its ComSec or Secure Communications Charter. So what would happen is if um, a, a flight required uh, a crypto aspect to its mission, we would go. Uh, the security NCO would unlock the, the the secure room. It wasn't a vault, but it was a secure room, and pull out the ciphers that we were supposed to use. And we would take the ciphers and download them basically into a small memory module then go out to the aircraft and and load the cipher into the uh, KY-58 uh, voice scrambler encryption device. It was a pretty slick uh, piece of of, uh, technology, I thought. I think it's since has become obsolescent. And um, a a job that I held here locally, which I I won't give the name of the company, but they did a lot of work for the National Security Agency, particularly uh, its radio signal interception and it's not, there's actually quite a few firms that do that kind of work um, for the National Security Agency, so it's not like there's just three or four suppliers. Um, the NSA was very uptight about the operational security, even requesting things such as the titles given to drawings. Um, I remember one was called uh, Shiner Bach, which is a beer. German beer, and it was for an installation that the NSA had in Germany, which was at at Bad Obling. So they didn't want us to call it. This is the drawing for the Bad Obling facility. They wanted us to say Shine. Well, one of the guy managers came up with the idea. Oh, Shiner Bock. Um, you know, really ridiculous levels of, of security. Um, about the National Security Agency, though, that they are part of the Department of Defense. Their mission, primary mission, is Signal intelligence and their secondary mission is communication security or COMSEC. They do some electronic intelligence. Most of that falls more directly on the Defense Intelligence Agency and the uh, corresponding uh, units, usually either the Air Force or the Navy. And the National Security Agency is the, is the foundation of the Echelon Network and the Echelon Network is kind of a, not quite a global spying Outfit. It includes the United Kingdom, Canada, the U.S., New Zealand, and Australia, and they were all united together under this agreement called the UK-USA Agreement, that dates back, I believe, to the late 40s or the early 50s. But without the NSA, there would be no echelon network. The signal intelligence in this country went from originally, at the time of World War One of cable, telegram, and telex monitoring to radio monitoring of ground-based communications to radio monitoring of satellite to earth station communications and point-to-point microwave links, finally to the point where we are today with fiber optic monitoring and and for certain like tactical uh, intelligence, cell phone monitoring, but most of the, the big strategic intelligence that the uh, NSA collects is from fiber optic monitoring the the move to the fiber optics was driven of course by the bandwidth needs uh, driven due to the, uh, the internet and video and conferencing one example of a fiber optic monitoring by the NSA was a, um, a room at an AT&T facility in San Francisco uh, room 641A and there's actually a Wikipedia entry on that. Just you know, type in room 641A and you'll get it. And a technician who was working on some AT&T equipment there found that something was not right. So he started exploring. And anyway, he found that there was this entire room of, of where the NSA was tapping off these overseas fiber optic cables coming into the U.S. at San Francisco. And then they were downloading the information from there. Now, as part of their the NSA's ComSec communication security mission, we'll go back to, say, the 1970s when IBM created an encryption standard called Data Encryption Standard, and it was for commercial clients, let's say like banks, that wanted to guarantee a high degree of security in their transactions. Well, the NSA cut a deal with IBM. The details, which are not fully known, though, which lowered the data encryption standard security from 128 bits down to 56 bits, which was a quite a, a um, downgrading of it. And the thought was very much that the NSA wanted to have a, a, a cipher or, or encryption standard in place that they could still crack. Whereas the 128 bits, it would have been very very difficult at the time for them to have cracked that. W- one good thing about the data encryption standard, though, the weakness in it inspired the creation of public key cryptography, and uh, if you read that book I mentioned earlier by Simon Singh, he gets into very good deal, detail about public key cryptography. Uh, anytime you do like a credit card transaction online, I believe it uses public key pr- cryptography or people can download or, or buy the email program, which is called Pretty Good Privacy, Um uh, But the PGP, the public key cryptography, is just a fantastic testimony to how good of a solution the private sector uh, can produce, and we don't really need the NSA for communication security. That the private sector is capable of fulfilling the needs. But the NSA did try to, as the data encryption standard got older and older, by the early nineteen nineties, they were proposed. They were trying to basically pull all commercial encryption back under their own roof again. And so they proposed this standard called uh, the Clipper Encryption Standard, which used uh, what was called the Skipjack Algorithm. And Skipjack was just a formal name they gave to it. Uh, Like I said, this is very much uh, aimed at um, commercial groups like banks or credit card companies wanting to encrypt their communications Uh, There was a lot of talk at the time in the early 90s, particularly by folks on shortwave, a lot of whom were hyper-conspiratorialists, and almost everything they said about the Clipper standard was wrong, but they were right, in the one thing that mattered the most, they opposed it. Um, There's a book written by M.L. Shannon called The Phone Book, and it's about detecting bugs, um, people who are eavesdropping on you. It's a a fantastic book available from Paladin Press. But uh, Mr. Shannon, commenting on the uh, Clipper Standard uh, notes on page 183, he, uh, I quote, Of the many ciphers that exist, there are three that have gained almost universal acceptance, RSA, DES, and IDEA, and they all have one thing in common. The source code is available to anyone who wants it. Having it does not weaken the cipher, and unless there is a weakness in the cipher, there is no reason to keep the source a secret. The NSA is classified skipjack. Once again, that was the actual algorithm inside the Clipper encryption standard. The NSA has classified skipjack, top secret. Why does the NSA keep it secret? There is only one reason. NSA wrote it with a hidden weakness, a trapdoor, to em- which its employees can easily decrypt messages coded with it. And that was pretty much the, the conclusion most of the people in shortwave land had reached as well, too, and I, I believe they were right. The the NSA's communication security mission it goes so far though, and this is not really well known, but back in the late 1980s, that I believe it was uh, National Semiconductor, which was then out of Santa Clara, California, was paid 200 million dollars to set up a semiconductor fab plant for the NSA at their uh, Fort Meade headquarters in Maryland. And this was so the NSA did not have to release any of its proprietary encryption design work to the private sector, so they could basically, say for a run of of government telephones, they would contract with some company to make the telephones, but then the NSA would supply the actual encryption ICs for that, that they'd run on their own um, semiconductor fab. Now that fab now is a part of Texas Instruments, so I'm not quite sure how that's all panned out, but... You know, $200 million semiconductor fab was no uh, no joke. And they also, as well, um, part of their production is geared for oddball integrated circuits for the Central Intelligence Agency. And this would probably be for uh, clandestine listening devices, whereas if the CIA wanted to put a bug on... Um, I don't know, say like the Israeli ambassador's uh, phone. They would never do that, but if they would, then the NSA could create an integrated circuit for them, which no one would have any knowledge about. Now, the the National Security Agency, they work hand-in-hand with the armed forces that the Air Force runs listening posts for them, the Army does, and the the Navy runs um, intel, intel ships, the USS Liberty, which was attacked by Israel back, I believe, in 1968 or, or was it 1967? Do you remember?
0: No, I don't remember what, what year that was.
1: The, the Navy, though, will supply the spy ships. So there's an organization called the Central Security Service, and that's for all military signal intelligence branches um, are coordinated with the NSA. So this would include the Army's Intelligence and Security Command, the Naval Security Group, and the Air Force's Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Agency. Uh, when I was going through Air Force Tech School, there was actually an NCO there with me who had um, spent all of his career up until that time as being a part of the old Air Intelligence Agency, which is now the Air Force's Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Agency, and he was on the island of Crete at, a, at an Air Force listening post uh, listening into transmissions from the Warsaw Pact and um, uh, Soviet country, uh, the Soviet Union. Now, there are times when the National Security Agency wants to plant a bug either in a foreign country or set up a, a small listening post or do it domestically.
2: Now, domestically,
1: the FBI used to do that job for them, but they don't anymore. Uh, due to some problems that uh, popped up with those 1970s Senate hearings that I mentioned. So the CIA and the NSA got together and created another organization called the Special Collection Service, and they basically will go around doing surreptitious bug placement or setting up small listening posts. Well, I, I mentioned Echelon a few minutes ago the The actual organizations that are a part of that are uh, from Canada. There's the Communications Security Establishment, their version of the NSA. Uh, The United Kingdom's Government Communications Headquarters, or just called GCHQ for short. uh, Australia's Defense Signals Directorate, the DSD, and New Zealand's uh, Government Communications Security Bureau. And like I said, they were all brought together under the UK-USA agreement, which was almost kind of like a mini NATO treaty almost. The ramifications were so far reaching and they're very much still felt with us today. The NSA obviously can go in and tap individual phones or they can run their, um, their intel gathering points like with room 641A at the AT&T facility in San Francisco. But where there's satellite downlink data, and particularly during the starting in the 60s, more and more phone traffic going overseas was being routed via satellite. There's just a lot more call capacity than there was um, through, un- than through underwater cables. Now, they did surveil the underwater cables as well, there was kind of a very ingenious way they did that. But the satellite downlinks, they have several large stations worldwide and they're pretty easy to identify because you'll see these huge um spheres they look like golf balls on steroids and they will house beneath those earth station antennas to pick up communications downlinks so some of the big echelon stations and this was information once again that was considered very very top secret at one point now you know, you can find it on the web in in a second's time um There's a huge station, still is, at Pine Gap in Australia, which is kind of in the middle of that continent. In southern Germany, at one time, there was a large NSA post. This one was actually run by the Army at Bad Obling. I'm not sure if it's still open, but they still have some ability in southern Germany to uh, to monitor the traffic indigenous to that area. Uh, in the UK, at the Royal Air Force facility called Menwith Hill, and this is probably the largest NSA facility outside the U.S. And then in Japan, at the Air Force's Misawa Air Air Base, which you know it's this is in north one of the main Japanese islands in the northern part of it. Uh, the Air Force has a, an air base there called Misawa. It's a F-16 Squadron, but you'll also have the large portion of the base is dedicated to uh, the NSA mission. and Then in Honeygrove, West Virginia, believe it or not, there is a, a naval radio facility, and this is, does work for uh, the NSA as well. Then, just because the NSA has collected data, doesn't mean it's data that's useful. So they have these large-scale data processing centers uh, at several key places in the U.S. Obviously Fort Meade, Maryland is one of them, uh But in Texas, unfortunately, the uh, Texas Cryptology Center down in San Antonio, which is where the headquarters for the Air Force Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Agency is at, there's probably at least 5,000 NSA employees in the San Antonio area. And what they're doing is they're looking at signal traffic. They're looking saying, okay, are the keywords used here? Oh, these keywords pop up. Let me further analyze that message. Uh, There's a similar facility at Fort Gordon, Georgia, which is where the Army's uh, Signal Corps headquarters is at. And then in the Pacific, or in the Hawaiian Islands, to be uh, more specific, on the island of Oahu, the NSA has their old Pacific headquarters. And originally this was put there to collect traffic from uh, Japan and Okinawa, Korea, uh, Taiwan, The Philippines and Thailand back during the Vietnam War. Anyway, this is where Edward Snowden was working at, um, albeit under a a contractor to the NSA. But that's a their Hawaiian facility is fairly uh, fairly substantial. And last, but certainly not least, is a massive new data storage center and computational facility near Salt Lake City, Utah. It's it's a I mean, the, the facility is mind-boggling. It is so large. The power demands are like the equivalent of a steel mill. James Bamford, who's wrote a couple of very important books on the National Security Agency, he, he continues to write articles about it. had an article about this facility in Wired magazine, which you can find online. It's the uh, March 15, 2012 issue. All you need is the name of the article, which is, the NSA is building the country's biggest spy center. And this is in Utah, and it's just, I mean, a very uh, in-depth, groundbreaking uh, article on that. So, I mean, a lot of it's a lot of people think, oh, well, the NSA, well, Fort Meade, Maryland. Well, there's actually, you know, they have far in excess of 10,000 employees, even just in the U.S. that are outside of Fort Meade, Maryland. Now, in the books, this is, uh, I really wish Edward Snowden had read a couple of these books, where he could have seen oh, hey, this information I'm getting, it's already out in the public domain. There's no need to sacrifice myself to get this information out because it's already out there. But a book by David Kahn called The Code Breakers, which was the first major expose of the NSA, which I believe came out in the, the 1960s. And the NSA, tried they they turned over every rock they could to try to find some reason to prevent prohib- David Kahn for publishing that book. Uh, they asked for court orders to not have it uh, published. In the end, he backed down on a couple of small areas, but that information was included in the footnotes, so he basically still published the book he wanted that he wrote. Uh, the The Puzzle Palace, which came out in 1982, which was written by James Bamford, uh, just a, a phenomenal book on the NSA. Of course, at this point, it's a little over 30 years old, but Still very pertinent. Uh, The NSA also worked as well to try to keep James Bamford from publishing the the or his publisher from publishing the Puzzle Palace. Uh, Mr. Bamford came back in 2001 and wrote a a follow-on book about the NSA, what all had happened in the uh, ensuing years since then, called Body of Secrets. And actually, he it's not just between 1982 to 2001. He actually goes back into the Vietnam. War era has a fantastic chapter on the NSA's role in the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which was basically a a false flag. The North Vietnamese did not come out unleashing hell on us. Uh, In my opinion, the best summary argument ever on the uh, Israeli attack on the USS Liberty, there's a very long chapter on that. And and believe it or not, the NSA actually was to the point when Bamford wrote this book that they tried, they went out of their way to help him research it. So I think it's kind of like with the Navy SEALs where they get so much ink now uh, in books that the NSA says, well, hey, you know, who's going to write the books to tell all our stories? So they actually stepped up to the plate for him at that time. The most recent book that's a survey of the NSA is was written by Matthew Aid, it uh, came out in 2010, The Secret Century, Century, The Untold History of the National Security Agency, and uh, due to its late date of publishing, this is considered by some folks, he, Seymour Hersh included, to be just hands down the best uh, history of the NSA, and the author, uh, Matthew Aid, has a, a fantastic intelligence blog, if you really enjoy uh, keeping up with the intel establishment on a daily basis, I highly recommend uh, his site. You can probably just find it by typing in Matthew Aid, that's A-I-D, and then say NSA or CIA or something like that. But his the URL for his blog is MatthewWaid.tumblr.com. Um, I think I got three more books here, and then we'll shift gears to another uh, the CIA, but Blind Man's Bluff, which was a a very entertaining read about um, signal intelligence being done via submarine during the Cold War and how we eavesdropped on uh, the communications of the Soviet Union via submarines. And there's also aspects of that book that deal with uh, electronic intelligence, ELINT, and measurement and signatures intelligence, uh, mass-int for the CIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency. The Day of Deceit: The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor, written by Robert Stennett. very good book about pre-World War II SIGINT and cryptography, intelligence, and uh, FDR's treachery. And then, lastly, uh, a book I'd already mentioned, M.L. Shannon's The The Phone Book. I, I really love reading stuff about det- you know how to detect bugs and, and whatnot. It's kind of a, an esoteric world and his book is really outstanding and there's there's quite a few there's quite a bit of literature on the subject and uh, Paladin Press is one of those that likes to uh, publish on it um just debating whether I should comment on this or not I, I will uh for anyone out there who's a an engineer just interested in radio uh, communications equipment as you might imagine the national security agency doesn't use just off the shelf uh radio monitoring equipment And if you're kind of curious a little bit about some of this equipment, here's a few companies that makes uh, radio monitoring equipment for them. Uh, Eclipse Electronics, as in eclipse of the sun, Uh, they're located in the Dallas area. Technology for Communications International, they're in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Rhodian Shorts, they're a German outfit. They also make fantastic electronic uh, test equipment. Rockwell Collins has a line that's more focused on electronic intelligence and cubic communications. And there's a lot more, but that's enough to get started with. And for people who'd like to know more about uh, signal intelligence, electronic intelligence, and image intelligence satellite and aircraft, uh, Lockheed Martin has made a a number of our spy satellites. They also made the the U-2 think of uh, Francis Gary Powers, who was shot down over the Soviet Union, as well as the uh, SR-71 spy plane. L3 Communications, which is in Greenville, Texas, they uh, they do the actual overhaul work of the Boeing 707, turning it into what is called the RC-135 rivet joint, a very serious uh, airborne signal intelligence platform. We have these accursed drones now, and and uh, Northrop Grumman has made signal intelligence and uh, image intelligence drones, uh, the uh, RQ-4 and the MQ-4 Global Hawk drone. And they also make the Army's signal intelligence aircraft, which is the uh, RC-12 guardrail. And last but certainly not least was uh, TRW, who is no longer uh, with us. They have been bought by Boeing, but they were a major a manufacturer, designer and manufacturer of spy satellites back during the Cold War, and they are now part of Boeing. So concluding comments on the NSA uh before we move on, There is a quote from U.S. Senator Frank Church, which I really liked. I think it says a lot about um, where the NSA stood at in 1975, and this quote is from NBC's Meet the Press, believe it or not, August 17th, today's date. In 1975, and the part I'm quoting is from page 477 of James Bamford's The Puzzle Palace. And I quote, At the same time, that capability at any time could be turned around on the American people, and no American would have any privacy left, such as the capability to monitor everything, telephone conversations, telegrams. It doesn't matter. There would be no place to hide. If this government ever became a tyranny, If a dictator ever took charge in this country, the technological capacity that the intelligence community has given the government could enable it to impose total tyranny, and there would be no way to fight back. Because the most careful effort to combine together in resistance to the government, no matter how privately it was done, is within the reach of the government to know. And this is a a member of the Senate in 1975. Who saw this problem how bad it was 38 years ago? And then, if you want to know a good reason not to work for the NSA, you know you could say forget about everything I said here. Uh, Matt Damon, who made his uh, acting debut in the movie Goodwill Hunting, which came out in 1997, there's a section of it where once it's revealed that he's this mathematical brainiac, that the NSA offers him a job. And so he says, well, why would I not want to work for the NSA? Well, I'll take a stab at that. And it's a very hilarious uh, 90 seconds to two minutes worth of him saying why he shouldn't work for the NSA. You can watch that section on YouTube. Just uh, type in why shouldn't I work for the NSA? And that concludes our comments about the National Security Agency.
0: I have one question from the chat room. There's a couple of them. I don't know if I can get to every one of them. But what do you think the fate is? Of Edward Snowden,
2: um,
1: there are people um, who have who have approached the the counterintelligence age uh, counterintelligence angle and think that Snowden could be a plant or to, to divert uh, attention away from other issues. I don't think so. For right now, I'm going to go with kind of just the established story that I do believe he's in in Russia somewhere, uh, maybe not in Moscow, but uh, perhaps in. Uh, one of the further out cities. I, I wish the poor guy well, but um, I don't think what he's did. What I mean, I agree with it. I admire his bravery. I just don't think it's going to have any effect long term.
0: As you've been talking to people just around the water cooler, as it were, do they care about it? Or are they aware of it? At, at my particular job, I've not heard one peep about it. People seem to be more concerned with sports and their favorite sitcoms than politics in general. I haven't heard anybody concerned about the fact that our government is spying on everything we do.
1: I think that most Americans, that as long as they have a job that pays even halfway well, that allows them to have their <clears throat> dish network satellite dish or cable TV and where they can buy enough beer to get drunk with after the Dallas Cowboys lose, that most of them don't really get serious in this area. Oh, they may listen to a little Rush Limbaugh, or they may think, well, you know, I picked up five minutes from – the O'Reilly factor, so I know something, but eighty to ninety percent of Americans, I, I don't think they really have that much interest in it and where the issues in so many ways have become so much more complex than what they were say hundred and fifty years ago where we didn't have to deal with, you know, the CIA and the NSA that national issues were much more simple, that they just kind of retreat into their world of sports or um uh, you know, internet pornography or whatever kind of video games they're playing at the time. I, I don't think we have to reach those people. I think we, the remnant we want to reach, and with time, is hopefully we're seeing the newspaper industry die off right now. And I, I hope as the ability of the left, has, their their ability to network starts dying, I, I hope that uh, we can start pulling people thinking more like us. But right now, and particularly, I would say up through the 1940s, almost everyone was a was a progressive or a liberal. It was just to what degree they were, and then you started seeing the emergence of a lot of the um, of the old right type writers, kind of the precursors of modern paleoconservatives or paleolibertarians. That uh, then people started becoming, you know, started fighting the progressive agenda. And the 50s as well too was when I think Rush Dooney's first books came out. Um, I believe they were one of them was about a critique of Freud, and then um, he had one who tried to make Vantillion's epistemology a bit more easier to understand. So you start seeing you know a lot of I think intellectualized resistance that started rising up. In the, particularly in the wake of World War II, how it was such an utterly disastrous war and the formation of the United Nations and the atomic bomb that, um it, it, it did bring so, a lot of good people out of the woodwork then. So, I, you know, long term, I don't know, i um, if these morons would just not ever have an opinion, it would be preferable to me than thinking that they watch five minutes of, of Bill O'Reilly or, or Michael Weiner Savage and think, Oh, you know, all of a sudden I have an opinion that matters. Well, you know, sorry, pal, you don't.
0: <laughs> yeah, good point. Well, if, if if we all just watched Glenn Glenn Beck, we'd all be sorted out, right?
1: That's right, yeah. The uh, <laughs> magic Mormon, you know, he's got it going on. And, of course, you know, he, he moved down to, uh, he lives just north of us, uh, I think 10 or 15 miles north of us. And, uh, so now you got this group of Texans. Oh, Glenn Becks, you know, blessed us with his presence. Yeah, you know, I wished he'd stayed, you know, under whatever rock he was living under at the time. Let him go back to, or let him go to Utah and hang out with all of his Mormons.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Well, let's dig into the Central Intelligence Agency.
1: Okay. Yeah, that, uh, People seem to go through phases on different organizations, and for a long time, you know, post Vietnam up to about 1990, it was everyone would talk about, oh, the green berets, the green berets. No one talked about the Navy SEALs. Well, in the Intel world, it was much the same thing. It was a central intelligence agency up till really almost, I'd say, around 2000, and then the NSA, which I think, you know, has wanted some recognition for themselves. The NSA started taking over. Now you know people talk about the NSA more, particularly in movies, than they do with the CIA. Uh, But the CIA, um, you know, was our first really massive uh, intelligence agency. It's uh, an executive agency. It reports to the Director of National Intelligence. The um, it used to not to uh, George W. Bush's presidency created the Director of National Intelligence. Basically, it's a duplicative effort. The CIA was to be the collator of all uh, intelligence. And then in the wake of 9-11, Bush said, well, no, we need another agency that takes the CIA's and, uh, information and collates it and gives it to the president. And a typical duplication of effort. Uh, the CIA descended from the World War II era OSS, uh, which is where it got its start. Its primary mission is human intelligence, uh, people who you know, running agents, or having a debriefing defectors. Open source intelligence, they have a huge amount of analysis that goes on on open source intelligence, and image intelligence. And as I said, they were originally supposed to be the primary dissemination point for all intelligence. They still, to the best of my knowledge, conduct a daily intel brief of the president and any ex-presidents that want it. So even though they're no longer in office, the ex-presidents receive Secret Service protection and a daily intel brief from the CIA if they want it. There are two major organizations within the CIA. The first one is the Director of Intelligence, and that's responsible for all all source intelligence research and analysis. So this would be where a lot of your analysts hang out at. Um, The second group is the one that we hear more about and has been really the source of great evil in the Central Intelligence Agency, and it's called the National Clandestine Service. And it was formerly called the Directorate of of Operations, but they do clandestine intelligence collection and covert actions, and the covert actions is the the real bad uh, activity they're involved with. Inside of the covert action group is the Special Activities Division, and within inside the Special Activities Division, there are two separate groups. One for tactical paramilitary observation operations, which is called the Special Observation Group. I'm going to talk about that more later under Special special Operations. And the other part is called the Political Action Group, and they are uh, they um, engage in covert operations. Activities related to political influence, buying of politicians, blackmailing, psychological operations, and economic warfare. Uh, the rapid development of technology is—you know—now they've added cyber warfare to their mission. And um, you know, if you think of cyber warfare, well, think of the Stuxnet worm or virus uh, that was basically uh, put into one of the, of the or Iran's nuclear power plant that they're trying to develop. They've had a lot of delays due to Stuxnet. And uh, Stuxnet, if you're, it's spelled S-T-U-X-N-E-T. And it's a very sophisticated virus or worm, if you want to call it that. And the thinking is, is that it was either developed by the CIA, Mossad, or Israel's version of the NSA called Unit 8200. I'll talk more about them shortly, too. Uh, or it was a joint operation, probably with like American cash funding either the CIA or the Mossad, or Unit 8200, to develop it. And then probably the Mossad used the uh, Persian Jews that exist in Iran to actually get Stuxnet out to where they want it. Uh, but the CIA is troublesome in large part because they can conduct covert operations. And sometimes they'll utilize the military to do this, other times it's purely in-house the National Security Agency, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the National Reconnaissance Office, none of them have that ability. only the CIA has that ability on the other hand the um, the analysis of intelligence information is not really very troubling in and of itself. The CIA has been very inept at it they've been very poor analyzers of information and they have, tend to have a uh, a not invented syndrome not invented here syndrome, but you know people don't generally don't die because of that, or at least not in great numbers. So it's you know, it's not the analysis wing of the CIA that controls us so much, it's the covert operations. Uh just real quick, a major faux pas to avoid when talking about the CIA, and this is a really good way to root out wannabes, is that intelligence officers work for the CIA, that agents are assets that the intelligence officers run. So let's say I'm an intelligence officer that's assigned to the American embassy in uh, Ankara, Turkey. Well, if I find Turks who want to sell me information or give me information about some aspect of the Turkish government or military, they would be considered agents. On the other hand, Most federal law enforcement agencies have special agents, so it it reverses for law enforcement in the CIA, but strictly speaking, a CIA agent is someone who is a native in a particular country doing work for the CIA on more of a contract basis. The CIA has acknowledged some covert activities and others it never has. Uh, To aid in secrecy, the CIA, um, with at least one military special operations force, that being SEAL Team 6, will create front companies to hide what they're really doing. Uh, The CIA, I think at one time, had over 400 front organizations that were actually known about. And sometimes they'll even use legitimate companies to varying degrees. Uh, You and I are both big fans of uh, the movie JFK by Oliver Stone. And you remember the Clay Shaw character? I do. It's played by Tommy Lee Jones. Well, he was involved with an actual company called United Fruit, which, uh, you know, grew bananas and pineapples and stuff like that in in Guatemala and elsewhere in Central America. So, you know, that would have been an instance of where the CIA was using an employee or a contact with a legitimate company. Other uh, companies are completely illegitimate and are are letterhead outfits. at all, I believe that there are multiple unofficial groups within the CIA that run to varying degrees their own agenda, separate from official sanctioning. The drug running that goes on in the CIA is one example. Um, the killing of JFK, which I, I believe that the CIA was very much involved in, uh, might have been as part of this. Then again, the, the hit on JFK may have been approved at the highest. Levels. I mean, after all, JFK had, had sacked the uh, director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, only, uh, I believe, a, a few months prior to him being killed. So, um, you know, it might have been an actually sanctioned hit. But I think there, you know, that the guy who sits there and all he does is read uh, Japanese newspapers, for instance, I don't think he really has an idea of the, of the evil going on, um with the CIA's drug running. Or you can read books like by Michael Schur, who was, uh, uh, he was actually a big fan of Ron Paul and headed up the CIA's bin Laden unit and has had some very nasty things to say about Israel in interviews. I, I don't agree with everything the man says, but I, I, I don't think that he's, uh, would be considered a dirty person in that respect. So I, I think that there are these multiple units and it's probably just people who have proven themselves to be Machiavellian or ruthless get drafted off, and people have their own little fiefdoms within the Central Intelligence Agency as so they've gotten to be there longer. Um, large-scale covert operations with lasting repercussions. Uh, the regime change that took place in Iran in 1953. I mean, here we are 60 years later, and this is still an issue, that the Shah was put, basically put in through a uh, misinformation campaign and by ballot fraud via the CIA that they had a, that the Iranians had originally picked kind of a soft socialist to be their leader instead they got stuck with the Shah who um who treated the country basically as his own private bank account uh there was another um CIA driven regime change that took place in Guatemala in 1956 then of course we know about the uh, killing of JFK in 63 there was a CIA employee named E Howard Hunt who is considered by many to have been the CIA paymaster or the money man for the assassination. And Hunt, believe it or not, shows up again during Watergate. Uh, Drug running, the Golden Triangle in Southeast Asia, uh, probably is one of the better known examples of uh, CIA drug running. This was used presumably to help fund covert operations. So instead of having to ask Congress for a bigger part of their black budget, they just go out and raise the money themselves. Uh, drug running from Central America to help fund the Contras and undoubtedly un- other covert operations is probably as well as a- some degree of personal enrichment. In, in all likelihood, this- there was a CIA drug ring running out of Frankfurt as well. Uh, all the details, at least as I- I'm aware of, are not fully known, but it was some degree of CIA involvement with Uh, either Hezbollah and or under Mossad. And this all played a role in the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103, which uh, blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland. Uh, Another huge area, and this will be in the books section that I'll talk mention it, but the CIA and the Sicilian Mafia were involved in a great deal of looting of the savings and loans back in the 1980s, which uh, was one of the Reasons that we had the huge meltdown uh, of the SNLs, leading to the uh, savings and loan crisis of the 80s, and then there's the really dark aspects of the CIA, like uh, the MK Ultra project, or where they used LSD on experiments on a, a man like um, an army captain by the name of Frank Olson. He was a biological uh, warfare researcher at Fort Detrick, Maryland. And he had LSD administered to him, and in all likelihood that was why he he killed himself, that he was losing his mind and couldn't understand why. And then there was torture that used to be conducted in the Panama Canal zone uh, back in the 50s and 60s in the process of interrogating people. Um, And then there's Extraordinary Rendition, where people who are captured are shipped to places like Egypt and Jordan for uh where they can be interrogated with torture. And then lastly, uh, I I never really considered Watergate a a CIA plot against Richard Nixon, but there was a a book that came out a a few years ago, Family of Secrets, written by Russ Baker, which I think made a very compelling case that that Watergate was a CIA uh, operation from beginning to end to get rid of Nixon, who was actually quite a uh, vehement critic of the uh, CIA. And if people want to know more about what the CIA has done in terms of regime changes abroad, there's an entire Wikipedia entry on it, um, Covert United States Foreign Regime Change Actions, and and they'll find it. Um, There's also been a a, a drive, this is one of the lesser known aspects, but it it falls under their psychological warfare uh, mandate under their political action group, that the CIA has funded and helped start up numerous news sources in the U.S. and Europe uh, because they want to control or at least have some degree of influence in the uh, content. A a prominent example of this was the CIA's funding of William F. Buckley, who worked as a a CIA intelligence officer in their uh, Mexico City office, which was in the American Embassy. Uh, William F. Buckley, of course, started the National Review magazine, which is, in my opinion, just a, a terrible, uh, respectable country club type of conservative magazine. Although, granted, they would, uh, you know, occasionally hire good writers, like, say, Joseph Sobran. But, but overall, National Review was a publication that basically said, "Hey, in order to fight communism and keep the Soviet Union at bay." We've got to build this huge intelligence apparatus, and we've got to have this huge military-industrial complex. And, of course, that was music to the CIA's ears. That's what they wanted uh, publications to say. So by the left wing giving – it was controlled opposition where the left wing would say, okay, well, hey, we need to have this intel operation – and then the right wing would come out and say the same thing. So where there's a very much a lack of missing alternatives, and unfortunately the internet is uh, destroying that. Uh, if people who want to know more about William F. Buckley, uh, check out Murray Rothbard's uh, archives at lurockwell.com. Or there was a book written by the uh, John Birch Society president, John McManus. It's uh, called William F. Buckley: Pied Piper for the Establishment. And A lot of his research was based on earlier research done by uh, Robert Welch, who uh, was the founder of the Birch Society. And William F. Buckley had gone to great pains to uh, smear uh, Robert Welch.
0: Or if you want to learn more about Buckley, just come to my church, and there's a guy there that likes to pass out national review magazines. He He's a classic Repub- Republican. Jeez. He it had was, a, like a stockbroker or something. Oh yeah, like that. he's he he had the John McCain bumper sticker. He had the Mitt Romney bumper sticker, but now he ripped those off. So only there's only a Rush Limbaugh sticker left on there now. It's it's. <laughs> I don't know whether story. to laugh or to cry. Yeah, I know it. It really is. I I pull out my <laughs> yeah. beard every time I see it.
1: And this is the Presbyterian Church of America's their political alternative to the PCU yeah
0: Yeah, he wants everyone to get hardcore and extremist and read uh, the National Review.
1: (laughs) I mean, you know, I've looked at a few uh, issues over the years because I, you know, I kind of think I should be culturally literate about that sort of thing. And, uh, it's so boring and and dry. And the people that really dig it, they always strike me as, as pompous asses that you know, that they want to work on Wall Street or, you know, well, like, you know, the term country club conservative of the, like, well, we believe in good, respectable things. We're not big into the Second Amendment and we love our Jews. And uh, you, you may have remembered back in 92 or 93 that William F. Buckley uh, wrote this huge article and it was a whole issue dedicated to it called In Search of Anti-Semitism and uh, William F. Buckley was looking for anti-Semitism in the conservative movement. And this was actually when Joseph Sobrin had his falling out with National Review because William F. Buckley came in and accused, you know, like one of the high-level editors of his own magazine, bizarrely enough, that well, I have to conclude that Joseph Sobrin is is an anti-Semite. And things just went downhill from
0: there. I do. Uh, I remember that. And I also know that Before his big compromise, Buckley actually said that international bankers was a code word for Jews. (laughs) Well, you
1: hear the same thing too about neocons today. That some Jews say, "Hey, neocon—that's just you know—that's a code word for Jewish conservatives." Okay, sure. So we'll say Jewish conservatives. Yeah, Yeah, there was uh, enough truth in National Review, particularly in its earlier years, to you know kind of somewhat justify the publication. But when you know that. When the CIA and the military-industrial complex needed someone to pull the um, conservatives back into their camp, you know they were always there. I think too that the National Review caved pretty early on the uh, whole civil rights issue, didn't they? Oh yeah. Yeah, I don't think yeah. they waited till like the 70s or 80s. And I think it was, you know, while it was going on that they were saying, hey, we got to, you know, we got to get behind this because of Human rights, probably been the way they approached, the, approached it. Um, it. it's been a terrible publication, and, and William mm-hmm. F. Buckley, he's a, as a writer, I think he's a pompous ass that you know, loves using $50 words, and I have no doubt he's a wordsmith, but he writes to me in a lot of ways like Doug Wilson, that he writes in an intentionally obfuscating manner, and we're supposed to say, gosh, he's so smart. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I get that same impression when I read when I read William, or I'm sorry, Wilson. I, I feel like he's behind his keyboard seeing how smart he, smart and cute and clever he can be.
1: And, and Did you ever think any of the diehard Wilsonites really understood either? No, they I don't were think like, so. Oh, gosh, I got to know, I got to, this guy's smart, so I got to say he's smart, so people will think I'm smart.
0: <laughs> yeah, he, uh, Tim Harris, who we're having on in two weeks, I recall when he was, he was uh, silenced for, Talking about the Jewish business, as Wilson put it. <laughs> Enough with the Jew business, Tim. Well, <laughs> oh,
1: man, you know, of course, the Jew business is one of the most important things. And, you know, you just, after a while, get so sick of people in the hard reformed world, whether it be uh, Wilson or uh, Andrew Sandlin, who used to be the former uh, controlling editor yeah. of the Calcedon Report. You know, he, he carries the waters for the Jews, or at least he deflects criticism. Um, you know, of course, then Steve Sleasel himself, who's, uh, always, you know, glad to let us Gentiles know that the Jews really have got a lot of things figured out. They just don't have Jesus. But, yeah. Other than that, they're, they're basically okay. I think, I uh, don't want to go too far off on a tangent here, but I think one of the great failings, uh, will be chalked up long term is that the, the Protestant Reformation, particularly the Reformed branch, really, really screwed up with their, uh, early on, Um, Small degree of favor they showed the Jews, you know, the Rome, the futurist interpretation of Romans 11, or how the uh, King James Version started the process of, uh, instead of referring to Israelites or Hebrews, they would say Jews. And, you know, with time, of course, you know, Schofield took that inch that the door was open and he opened it up all the way. And now you've just got this fanatical philo-Semitism that's ubiquitous in all the churches. Oh, you don't believe the Jews are God's chosen people? Well, you're going to hell! Goodness gracious! Now it's a test of orthodoxy.
0: It really is. Is your
1: uh, National Review buddy is he a big uh, Jew lover as well, too? He
0: is a big Jew lover. He's an anti theonomist I've gotten. Oh, lovely! Yeah, yeah, and he's he's the one that I've mentioned on previous podcasts who walks around with this special folder in which is you know, National Review magazines and kind of a file on. Uh, who's who in the Reconstruction movement. One time he whipped it out and said, Rush Dooney, he believed that the you know 100,000 or 200,000 Jews were killed in Hitler's Germany rather than 6 million, so we can't trust anything he has to say. <laughs> I think I've mentioned that before, but that really disgusted me.
1: Oh, I can't imagine why. Yeah. yeah. Did you uh, arrange for him to have a uh, DVD copy of one-third of the Holocaust? <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, I haven't done that yet, but the night's still young.
1: I was just watching a part of that earlier this week, and it's a fantastic, fantastic
2: teardown.
0: Yeah, it is. That's the one where they actually go to the demonstration of burning, like, chicken meat or something and to see how long it cooks, and... and it, Am I, get, have I got that right? They're talking about two specific things. It must camps.
1: be late. I watched the first hour and a half okay. of it, I think, before I had to get back to preparing you know, what I'm talking yeah, about. There's a, but it was like, my gosh, that's this, it. this is so scholarly that he's you know, tearing into the footnotes of this, yeah. uh, this book. And then, you know, where the cited sources were just pure garbage.
0: Yeah, there's one point where he gets some some kind of animal meat and he's on the beach and he stacks it up the way it was supposed to be stacked up in Germany and 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 burns it it to see how long it would take just for a a piece of meat like that to burn. And it shows that it's impossible that these Germans burnt all these bodies like this. It's
1: amazing that, you know, the, uh, that the Germans or the Jews portray them as either having the ultimate esoteric secret knowledge of chemistry where they can, you know, they can, kill 10 million people in a 12 by 12 gas chamber or where they just totally goof up and drop the ball with their, uh, diesel generator their diesel engine being used to, uh, uh, the gas, the Jews. So, you know, those gnarly Germans, they either, you know, supermen from out of space or they're adults. So
0: yeah. And they're, uh, and they're really stupid too. They bury thousands of dead bodies by their water supply.
1: I, I, well, but see then maybe that was the German magic where it kept it from, um, you know, yeah. it, uh, Infiltrating their water
2: Could supply. Be. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: that, that is a. Someone eventually have to do a, a huge. You have to have a show a huge tear down on the Holocaust. Yeah, I need to do that. Um. Oh, back to books on the CIA. Um, the, Buckley was a member of a Yale senior year secret fraternity uh, called Skull and Bones. That you know, probably most uh, listeners are familiar with. Uh, it's there's been a lot there are a lot of different uh, secret um fraternities at american colleges most of them are at the ivy league schools and some um there's two other really uh, powerful ones at, at uh, yale uh, scroll and key and, and wolf's head i believe and there's another one over at um uh, not colgate um i can't think of the school it's in central new york well, neither here nor there. Anyway, Skull and Bones has by far been the most powerful one, and, and Buckley was a member of Skull and Bones. And and Skull and Bones members tend to dominate the, the early Central Intelligence Agency. So if, if people wanted more uh, information on Skull and Bones, I would highly recommend Anthony Sutton's book, America's Secret Establishment, An Introduction to the Order of Skull and Bones. And that book was written with the help um, of a woman. Her name's Charlotte Izerbitt. She's a real guru on the evils of government education. But her father and her grandfather were both members of Skull and Bones, and her father gave him her um, her his 1983 membership data, which in turn she gave to Anthony Sutton, so he could write you know that book. Um, you know, just very incredible stuff. If people want kind of like a nice personal informal interview with Charlotte Isabelle and she goes into a good bit of detail on information on skull and bones, uh, just do a YouTube search for Charlotte Isabelle Skull and Bones, The Order at Yale Revealed. And, uh, it, it's some really good in-depth stuff there. A lot of it's just more detail or minutia oriented that Anthony Sutton doesn't include in its book, but still pretty interesting. Um, I'd already mentioned Russ Baker's Family of Secrets. Uh, that's a book that's about uh, George W. Bush and his father, George H. W. Bush, and the father's connection to the Central Intelligence Agency. And at one time, Bush wa- uh, Bush Senior was the director of the CIA, and goes into the um, George H. W. Bush's bizarre presence in Dallas on the day of uh, JFK's assassination, which it's never really been established why he was there presumably it was just where he was saying hey i know what's about to happen i'm a part of the crew that uh, knows things and i'm a good guy to know and if uh, we all go if we go down we'll go down together uh if we go up then i'll you know hopefully go up as well uh national geographic which you know most people don't think of that as a source for great revisionist history but they uh, have a a video which is also on youtube called CIA Hidden Operations, which uh, goes into depth about MKUltra, ultra the LSD experiments, medical experiments, evil Jewish doctors tied to the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, It's really good and pretty short, too. I think it's only about an hour long. Concerning the CIA and drug running, there are two books by um, a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Alfred McCoy, uh, which are considered very central to the, the topic, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, which is obviously about the CIA and heroin in Southeast Asia, and his second book on the subject, The Politics of Heroin, CIA CIA Complicity in the Global Drug Trade. And um, that was written, I believe, originally in the early 1990s, so it would include almost all the Vietnam War era stuff. He he also wrote a third book about the American intelligence state uh, titled Policing America's Empire, the united states the philippines and the rise of the surveillance state and he, he contends that a, a lot of our intel establishment started with the philippine insurrection which came right on the heels of the spanish american war which started in 1898 and i believe the philippine occupation really started in force about 1901 well there was a huge uh, well you know we called it an insurrection where these Filipinos were fighting us to keep us out, to kick us out. And that was where a lot of our um surveillance techniques first started being tested. And from there, it's going like crazy. Uh For people who don't want to read the book, where their time is precious, there's a great YouTube presentation that he gives where he gives the core of the book, um, titled Talked by Alfred McCoy uh, on the surveillance state, Philippine pacification and the making of the U.S. internal security apparatus. And I highly recommend that, uh, that video. Uh, CIA and JFK. Uh, Mark Lane was probably the uh, first of the Kennedy assassination researchers, revisionists, that really put that connection together. And I think his first book was called Plausible Denial was the CIA involved in the assassination of Kennedy. And there has been a lot of stuff that has come out since then, but that's still considered one of the grandfather books on the topic. The Secret Life of Bill Clinton, written by a very respected, well-known British journalist, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, has a lot of good information about the CIA's operations in Mena, Arkansas. And then along that line, you had a, a, a prior guest... Uh, Mr. Cottrell, who had, uh, mentioned, uh, compromised Clinton, Bush, and the CIA, uh, by Terry Reid, which goes more in depth about the, um, what happened in, the, in Mena, Arkansas. And,
2: uh,
1: w- w- pardon me, I've lost my train of thought. Uh, the Mafia, CIA, and George Bush, which is by George, uh, Peter Bruton. And this deals with the CIA and the organized organized crime role in the savings and loan crisis in the 80s. The the author of this book has a very outstanding bona fides. He's an author. uh, Well, of course, he's an author. The author is a law professor at Texas Tech and is a former reporter for the Houston Chronicle. And that was where he started researching this is when he was a reporter there. And currently, I believe he's a, a law professor at Texas Tech. So anyway, I mean, he understands what the nature of, of what good evidence is. And he, he contends that the CIA was up to its eyeballs with the mafia and the role and their part in creating the SNL crisis in the 80s. And of course, there was a lot of speculative investment that went on that drove that as well too. But it wasn't just speculative investment. <clears throat> but if people were to say, okay, hey, I just want to read two books on the CIA. Can you give me two books to look at? The first would be Legacy of Ashes, the History of the CIA, which is written by Tim Weiner. As you might guess, he's a Jew, a Jewish reporter for the New York Times. So, you know, he's got a good Rolodex of, contact, of contacts at the agency. But it is just a general overview of the Central Intelligence Agency's performance, and he concludes it's been a failure. The second one is called In Search of Enemies by John Stockwell. And Mr. Stockwell was the CIA intelligence officer who managed their role in the Angola conflict in the mid-1970s. After um, the Angola operation went south, he, became, Mr. Stockwell grew disgusted and left the agency. That book is, in my, in my thinking, it was almost kind of boring and very dry and cold, but it was a very, uh, very factual in depth detail, uh, look at one CIA operation that failed in depth. And I think you could take our misadventures in Angola and apply that to other areas. I have, uh, I think a few movies here that are pretty good on the CIA and then we'll, we'll leave that and go into another Intel, uh, group. But, uh, the, the Good Shepherd. Which uh dealt heavily with skull and bones in the CIA. Robert De Niro was in that film. I think Matt Damon as well. Uh very candid on a lot of its view of the skull and bones. A pretty good movie. The Lives of Others, which this was a two thousand six German language film about the East German Stasi organization, uh starting in eighty four and concluding in ninety one. Now you might think, Oh, that's a Stasi, not the CIA. I think it gives, though, a good insight into tyrannical intelligence agencies, and, and as dark as the subject matter in the movie is, it really ends on a very good note, um, which was quite unexpected. A, a miniseries called The Company, which came out in 2007 um, from TNT, a very good, minorly fictionalized account of, of a lot of what went on there at the um, at, in the CIA's real history. Zero Dark Thirty, that was a a movie that was released, I think, in 2012, directed by Catherine Bigelow. She uh, also directed The Hurt Locker, which was about uh, explosive ordnance removal in Iraq. But in Zero Dark Thirty, it's about the hunt for um, Osama bin Laden and SEAL Team Six's mission to kill him. But it's more of a movie about the CIA than it is about SEAL Team Six. A Body of Lies, uh, a 2008 film by Ridley Scott, uh, uh, Siriana, which starred George Clooney, and that movie was based on a book about the CIA by a former uh, CIA intelligence officer, Robert Baer. His book was called See No Evil. I've read it. It's a a decent book, but to my way of thinking, it is far too limited of a critique of the CIA. And my last two uh, movies... On this would be the missiles of October, which was a good example about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Obviously, a good example of image intelligence and its role in uh, national decision making. And then a movie titled *Rendition*, which was about extraordinary rendition. I, I didn't really like the movie. It was well put together. I thought it had good production values. I just didn't really like the story. Plus, there's a, a huge miscegenation story, you know, part where the um, the Arab who is, yeah, I saw that. uh, Yeah. I just couldn't go it. But if people want an idea of what, uh, kind of a fictionalized idea of what extraordinary rendition is about, they could watch the movie. So coming up for air.
0: Yeah. Take a drink. Yeah. Who was the girl that played the, the white wife of that Arab? That was, uh,
1: I think it was Reese Witherspoon.
0: Reese Witherspoon. yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, there's probably someone in the chat room who can answer that very quickly for you if you want to know. But I do think it was Reese.
0: Uh, yeah, 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 you are right. It, it was her. I just I saw that a couple months ago and thought it just gives you a, a good picture of what what we do with grand Oh, did you
1: see um, the Green Zone? I don't think so. It was where Matt Damon was a. No, yeah, chief warrant officer.
0: Well, i I was reviewing it to see if I wanted to watch it on Amazon Prime, but I just didn't. I didn't like it. If, if unless it's overtly anti U.S. Army or U.S. Marines or whatever, I typically don't watch it. If it's uh but I, perhaps I read it wrong.
1: I, I think it really wasn't anti army as much as it was anti officer corps. Okay. It uh, also had some. I thought showed the media compromise. Yeah, maybe that. I'm confused
0: on some, but I'll have to put that in the queue if you recommend it.
1: I, I liked it. I, I did. Yeah. Um, they had, you know, kind of some runaway action scenes towards yeah. the end, but there was a, a lot of treachery, I thought, that was uh, well well put uh, together in it. To me, movies like, you know, Siriana or Body of Lies, I really thought more um, showed better the duplicitous nature of the CIA, particularly that was Syrian, since it was you know somewhat based on uh, "See No Evil."
0: You were the one that recommended to me "Shooter," and I loved that movie.
1: Oh, wasn't "Shooter," also. Awesome?
0: That was great.
1: Uh, Bobby Lee Swagger. Uh, I think she right. has watched "Shooter" she, twenty-five
0: times. She tells me <laughs> she she tells me it's like "Braveheart," and that the more you watch it, the better it gets. And I I thought she was overstating the case because I. I, I liked it. I'll definitely watch it again, but maybe I need to take her up on that and watch it a second time. I absolutely loved it.
1: She's like a, a walking encyclopedia <laughs> on, uh, on, on Shooter. She can tell you every detail of it. But it was a freaking awesome movie. I mean, you know, very good anti-government things. I loved how they showed that suicide device. Yeah. You know, you know. I don't doubt that something like that exists.
0: Oh yeah, that was your that was a radical scene. And the her name even Bobby Lee Swagger is a playoff. The main character, Bobby Swagger.
1: <laughs> right, yeah, Bob Lee Swagger. I loved it in the beginning of where uh, um, that black fellow is recounting how, you know, and then the CIA uh, CIA officer vanished without a trace. Yep. <laughs> well, I guess Bob Lee Swagger didn't think he was. Uh, um, Unimpeachable, or something like that. It was yeah, funny. It, it
0: was good. I love how they showed the the merge of big business and big government.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was well done, and I I, I think a lot of um, list writers have become a lot more sophisticated on that front. That when you had organizations like the the Birch Society and and writers like Carol Quigley with um, tragedy and hope that kind of push, started pushing this idea in the 50s and early 60s that, hey, you know, big business and, and, or slash capitalism, they're actually linked at the hip with the government, and they love socialism. And the people think, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, ca- socialism and capitalism are polar opposites, but they really aren't.
0: That's right, and they're not.
1: And uh, I think there's more and more people now who kind of understand that, and particularly we live in this age of, of global corporatism, which is utterly poisonous and how it works to drive socialism and socialism works to drive um, global corporatism. It's a real poisonous arrangement. Indeed. Well, shall we get uh, to the defense intelligence agency or is there yeah. uh, uh, any questions from the chat room?
0: Let me first? review. There's a few that came up and I, I don't want to sidetrack us. We may have moved past that point. Let's see. Yeah, let's, let's just press on.
1: Well, on the Defense Intelligence Agency, I don't really have a lot to say on that because it's kind of what the Central Intelligence Agency was for all U.S. government intelligence. The Defense Intelligence Agency is that for the military, with the exception of the National Security Agency. So let's say a um, naval attaché who is in London finds something of interest to the Army he could pass it through the Defense Intelligence Agency and vice versa. Um, it should be noted, too, that while the DIA is a kind of above all military intel operations, they have no control over the National Security Agency. The NSA is kind of an a independent operating agency with inside the Department of Defense. Very bizarre um, organizational structure. But our next intel agency <clears throat> is one that's... Um, it had an even bigger budget than the National Security Agency in the Cold War. It has, in fact, the biggest intel, uh, the biggest budget of any intelligence agency, bar none. It was called the National Reconnaissance Office, which still is. And it's a, a joint intel organization run by the Air Force and the Central Intelligence Agency. Their mission is focused basically on signal intelligence and image intelligence, They oversee, uh, they oversaw specifications, design, and deployment of various types of spy satellites. And that's their main business, is is getting spy satellites launched and recovering data from spy satellites and and sending it out. So they uh, deal with uh, image intelligence of the optical radar and infrared type. They uh, have satellites that look for nuclear detonation detection. I think those were called the Vela series satellites. Even ICBM launch detection and of course signal intelligence. That the major satellite families that the NRO is overseeing, probably the best known are the KH series of the Keyhole, and these are generally optical imaging, and some of them are um, they use radar imaging. The Lacrosse satellite in particular, it's like the size of a school bus. It's absolutely huge. Uh, They launch, uh, a lot of these satellites are not launched out of Cape Canaveral, Florida. They're launched out of Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. So a lot of the launches are never known by the public, um, because it's, you know, it's buried in an Air Force base. And a lot of those launches are for National Reconnaissance Office satellites. I'd mentioned earlier about the, about Lockheed Martin and Boeing being the two major um, builders of spy satellites, Lockheed Martin's operation was in the San Francisco Bay Area, still is, and then Boeing in Southern California. Boeing basically bought their way into the satellite business. They bought TRW and then Hughes Aircraft. Hughes Aircraft was not in the spy satellite business, but they were in the commercial satellite business. So there's a lot of, you know, of go-between uh, a lot of the technology lends itself very directly. The Air Force has, a, as a matter of fact, a, a base in California whose main job is to deal with um, spy satellites uh, in California, the, the people who make them, uh, Los Angeles Air Force Base, their Space and Missile Systems Center. It, they also deal with another organization that spun out of TRW, and it was another reason even though TRW is part of Boeing why I mentioned them, the Aerospace Corporation, which was spun out of TRW and still very involved with spy satellites, and that the Aerospace Corporation collaborates with National Reconnaissance Office in a way that I don't really fully understand. A lot of it looks to me like corporate welfare, where they have a degree of expertise, and, and because of that they are able to get large checks written to them by uh, FedGov to keep the spy satellite program working. The only book I can recommend... On this is not um it's not centered on the on the National Reconnaissance Office directly. There was a huge uh, spy case, an espionage case that took place back in the 1970s at TRW, at their uh, so-called black vault in Southern California, where a couple of uh, men there started selling secrets to the Soviet Union. It was just a horrible breach of, of security, but the they came to be the book written about the the two men it was called The Falcon and the Snowman, a true story of friendship and espionage. I read the book in either '88 or '89, and, and I really liked it. And there's also a movie by the same, well, close to the same title, The Falcon and the Snowman, which came out in '85, which I plan on watching again pretty soon. But the NRO is is a huge, you know, a huge budget because it's it's space oriented, and very very little is known about it. But most of the signal intelligence data that they would gather, say for the National Security Agency, gets passed off to the NSA and the NSA does the actual analysis on it. So the NRO is kind of a facilitator of treachery and they are not the ones responsible for the treachery itself from the information. Uh, Another intel group that's not well known, it's in the State Department called the Bureau of Intelligence and Research. And this is the State Department's intel group. Embassies, of course, are hotbeds of intelligence. You have the military attaches working there. The CIA has a large presence at at embassies, and some even have NSA um, signal intelligence work going on there. But if America were operating under constitutional restraints, the Bureau of Intelligence and Research would probably be one of only two intel groups that we would have. The Bureau of Intelligence and Research focuses primarily on intel involving the host country's political leaders, government, their economy, um, just kind of basic uh, understanding of, of, a, of a foreign country, so that diplomatic ties can be maintained. <clears throat> now, on um, I had mentioned earlier about counterintelligence and the FBI being involved in this. Robert Baer in his book, Casino Evil, he he believes that the CIA is trying to, the, excuse me, the FBI is trying to take over the CIA's job because they keep opening up more and more uh, foreign offices <clears throat> abroad, which granted, I mean, why is the FBI doing that? Well, they try to justify it based on organized crime. But Baer also points out as well that certain aspects of the CIA's own internal counterintelligence mission uh, mole hunting has been taken over by the FBI after the CIA really dropped the ball in, in several areas. Uh, something that people will see if they start looking into this area at all is uh, an operation that came up in the 1970s called PRO and that's an acronym standing for Counterintelligence Program. This was the FBI's biggest program to spy on American citizens, and the NSA was also involved in it as well. But much of the FBI's uh, eavesdropping was focused on left wing organizations, so the conservatives were all for it. But of course, you know, give a couple of decades of change in political wins, and all of a sudden the organization that was spying on your enemies, now all of a sudden they're spying on you. So still, COINTEL PRO was, uh, it created a lot of controversy when it was finally revealed in the 1970s during the church committee hearings. And, uh, it did somewhat limit the FBI's ability to, to spy on people. There aren't just, uh, I think there's, I got three books here that deal with the FBI and, and espionage. Another, uh, one of them is from our old, uh, Jewish New York Times writer, Tim Weiner, called Enemies, A History of the FBI. And it's, it's a survey book, just like the one he wrote on the CIA. And it traces the history of the FBI's Secret operations from um, the very beginning up through uh, Cointel Pro. Uh, Major Jordan's Diaries. This was a book republished by the uh, John Birch Society in the early 60s. Major Racy Jordan was a Lin Lease officer in World War II. And he ultimately came to be based at uh, an air base in Montana that was sending uh, goods to the Soviet Union via Canada, Alaska, the Bering Strait, known into Siberia. Well, anyway, he just uncovered a massive amount of um, Soviet espionage as well as us sending actual um, atomic bomb secrets via lend it's, it's The treachery, it's hard to believe it's so in-depth, but it was there. Then uh, a more recent book called uh, Dark Sun, The Making of the Hydrogen Bomb by Richard Rhodes, he actually includes a very good review of from Major Jordan's diaries about the uh, subject of the espionage that went on under Lynn Lease. He basically says that everything Jordan wrote has, has since been validated. And uh, Mr. Rhodes goes on to talk about just not only just the Soviet espionage, but how America's intel establishment was basically at the mercy of, of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, as well as the, the fact that with one exception, almost all the of the nuclear bomb uh, espionage agents in the United States were Jewish. And this guy, he's not some sort of, you know, foaming at the mouth left wing. I mean, he's a, a liberal, but he did at least point out the Jews that were, you know, that it was Jews involved in this treachery. The only book, uh, only movie that I am aware of dealing with the FBI's counterintelligence work is one that came out in 2007 called Breach. And this was about a, uh, actually it was an FBI agent who worked in counterintelligence, and his name was Robert Hansen. had been passing secrets to the Soviet Union for many a year, and then I believe after the Soviet Union dissolved, he continued to pass information to to Russia, I believe. But th- that was a pretty decent flick as well, too. Um, the last group of intelligence agencies I have here, there in the U.S., are, are from the um, U.S., Group itself, and the the first one is the Office of Naval Intelligence, which is actually the oldest intelligence organization in America. Period. That was started in, in 1882. That it was involved originally, like you know, how deep is the harbor at at, um, at Shanghai, how deep is the harbor in London? What is uh, the speed of French torpedoes? It, it was very much focused on just on on true. Uh, naval intelligence. They do have an electronic intelligence aspect of their mission. You remember back in 2001, early 2001, there was an American plane, an EP-3 Orion, which was forced down by the Chinese Air Force on Hainan Island uh, because it was flying just barely outside the 12-mile limit. And it was spying on uh, Chinese radars, and they didn't really take too kindly to it. And I really don't blame them uh, for it either. Uh, Other than the Navy, there's the Air Force Intel Group, which I've mentioned already, the Air Force Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Agency, and the Army's is the Army Intelligence and Security Command. Uh, Like the Navy, both of these Intel units have been heavily involved with the National Security Agency and collection of signals intelligence with the Navy, um, pardon me, i lost my thought here for just a moment. That actually does not matter.
0: That plane that was forced down in China, was it, was it, was it shot down or were they just landed? They it bumped, land.
1: it got bumped by a fighter Okay. and, uh, the fighter was so heavily damaged that the pilot had to eject in the, um. Chinese fighter crashed in the Pacific or the South China Sea. The um, EP-3 Orion, or actually it's called Ares, um, to designate its electronic intelligence role, landed on Hainan Island relatively intact. The air crew, I think, was held captive for a couple, three days. Nothing happened to them. They were returned very quickly. The uh, Chinese uh, took considerably longer returning the airplane, which... Uh, I'm sure they went over the avionics with a, a fine tooth comb. As much you would know, to be expected. I know a lot of conservatives were just howling outrage. Oh, you know, they were flying outside the you know, the territorial limit. Well, you know, China's a big country and if you're flying twelve and a half miles outside of their territorial limit and you know, spying on their radars, they wouldn't like it very much. The US wouldn't like it too much either. And, and part of it was just, I think, sloppy fi- uh, flying that got out of control. But, uh, God, I don't – unless you really are wanting to play active war games, you should not do that and hide behind the Jew lawyer argument. We were a half mile beyond the 12-mile limit. Well, you know, it's, talk is cheap. It's not going to last. There is a, a, a last branch of intelligence which exists in the the American army It's separate of a a formal intel agency, but you'll find this in their combat arms groups at their battalion level, brigade, division, corps level. And it's, uh, well, the officer, I think possibly the unit two is called the S-2 if it's the battalion level. If you get higher up, it'll be called like the G-2 at the staff level, J-2 if it's a joint operation. Uh, For those who've seen the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers, Ron Livingston's character, which is uh, Captain Lewis Nixon. He's an S2 officer at the battalion level. <clears throat> but this is kind of a different intelligence than the one I've been dealing with overall. This is very much, you know, real-time tactical type intelligence that would impact a division or a battalion in what they're doing. I mean, they're not going to be just trying to scare up, uh, data on the, the Chinese military's, uh, you know, artillery or anything like that. Basically, it's the disposition of forces that, hey, we uh, understand Intel tells us that they're, the Chinese have two divisions facing us over the next hill. So that is something that should be noted, uh, but it is not really, uh, those are not strategic intelligence type players. The last, uh, bit I have on, um, in, intelligence now shifts gears into the foreign units. Not going to spend a lot of time here. Uh, The United Kingdom and Israel were going to be the only two countries I was going to mention because obviously the United Kingdom, we have this kind of bizarre relationship with them, in part because of our history with them, but also driven as well, too, from the UK-USA agreement that uh, the General Communications Headquarters, the GCHQ, which I already mentioned was the uh, their version of the National Security Agency, but they became really well-known after World War II once they broke the German Enigma Code, or once it became common knowledge that they broke the German Enigma Code. Alan Turing, who was a mathematician, became pretty famous from his work in breaking that code and the creation of the world's first computer. in Code Breaking, there's a very good chapter in James Bamford's book, The Puzzle Palace, which is about the uh, Great Britain's version of the NSA. Their headquarters building, too, is very, very bizarre. It's, it's shaped like an iris. And I'm not sure if there's some sort of occultic significance here, just like you know the American's Pentagon, which Lou Rockwell likes to call the pentagram um because it's obviously shaped like a you know, five-pointed um object a pentagram it's a, it's a, it's an odd shaped entity the UK's version of the central intelligence agency is called the SIS or the secret intelligence service uh, for the long version of it and some will call it MI6 um that's not its formal name but some will refer to it as MI6 the organization is headquartered in a kind of a bizarre-looking building as well, too. Well, it's not kind of bizarre-looking. It is. It's a ziggurat on the Thames River, and it's been featured prominently at least in one James Bond movie, and I think two. Um The FBI's, the UK's version of the FBI, is called the Security Service, and it's referred to as also as well as MI5. Now, I have a separate section on... Special operations units, and I'm not even sure if we can get to that tonight, but I did want to, while I was in talking about foreign units, just mention as well that the the British and their their special operations units, the British Army's Special Air Service and the Royal Navy Special Boat Service, these are like the granddaddy of all special forces units. That America's Delta Force is heavily, heavily based off of the British Army Special Air Service. Uh, there also there's an aspect of the Special Air Service that's similar to the Green Berets too. But the SAS has a has a counter terrorist squadron, and then there are other squadrons which are adept at another a number of other aspects of unconventional warfare. But the SAS, their unconvin- their um, pardon me, their counter terrorist work. There was a, they conducted a raid on the Iranian embassy in London in 1980. So while U.S. people were being held hostage in the Iranian embassy in Iran, or the American embassy in Iran in 1980, in London, the Iranian embassy staff were being held captive. I don't remember who the hostages were. But at any rate, the Special Air Service went in and broke the siege and I believe killed the men who were were holding them captive. And there was a movie inspired by that event, uh, released here in America in 1983, called The Final Option. I watched that movie probably in 1984, and I, I recall at the time I did not like it, but I was probably 15 years old when I saw that, so my opinion is not to be fully trusted. Then the Royal Navy Special Boat Service, just really, real badasses. um, well, they're masochists too because they put up with a lot of, of serious unpleasantness in becoming uh, Special Boat Service Commandos. The SEALs, once again, have drawn um, from the SBS, much like uh, Delta Force is drawn from the SAS. The other foreign and uh, foreign unit, uh, Israel. I don't have anything on their special forces. They have several special forces units. And they seem kind of duplicative, and I don't know, I just didn't really think they were worth commenting on. The real dish with Israel is Mossad, their version of the CIA, and it's probably, I hate to say it, but probably the best-run intelligence agency in the world. Um, Very ruthless, but very efficient as well. The And you can't discuss the Mossad without mentioning the cyanim, and cyanim is spelled S-A-Y-A-N-I-M. And that's their global network of Jewish volunteers. So let's say a Mossad operative in Spain gets shot. Well, instead of going to a,
2: <clears throat>
1: to a hospital, maybe having his cover blown, he just goes to a Jewish doctor who is a who's a sign and network contact and has his wound taken care of that way. And they're signing them in multiple multiple fields. Uh, There's an ar- article which appeared in Occidental Observer back in 2010, um, there March 26th to be specific, by the author, um, his name is Martin Webster, Mossad's One Million Helpers Worldwide. And I think it's just a great overview and survey of the problem with the cyanum and what happens when nations allow the Jewish religion to be practiced openly. You're going to have this problem with the cyanum because it allows them to network. Of course, the Mossad is known from being involved with false flag operations from the Boulevard Affair in Egypt back in the early 1950s to what I consider the the central players in 9-11. I think that the Mossad was the mastermind and ringleaders of that. While it couldn't have been done without uh, a certain amount of American personnel, probably Dick Cheney, one of them, and of course the owner of the World Trade Center, uh, Larry Silverstein, who was probably a, a sign of, uh volunteer. Of course, he made a good bit of money from the uh, insurance in the World Trade Center. But where the Mossad is very much, they think, uh, strategically in long term. And 9-11 got the United States to take care of the Iraqi threat. Will we take care of their uh, Syrian threat? That remains to be seen. Egypt at this point isn't a threat to them due to the internal turmoil that's gone on there. Um, the Israeli airline El Al also works uh, hand in hand with the Mossad. When, uh, I'm trying to think what his name was, Adolf Eichmann, when he was kidnapped in Buenos Aires. He wasn't flown um, to Israel on an American Airlines plane or or Delta Airlines. He was flown on an El Al flight uh, originating from Buenos Aires. I I think one of the best examples of Mossad ruthlessness on a personal or individual level involved what happened to a a former Sephardic Jew from French Morocco named uh, Mordecai the Nunu. He was the son of an Orthodox rabbi, but he later converted to Christianity. Venunu worked as a technician at Israel's nuclear reactor in uh, the Negev Desert in a region called Dimona. And this is where the Jewish state produces plutonium for its nuclear weapons. Uh, Venunu came to disagree with the program, and he basically told everything he knew to the press in Australia, and I believe in the United Kingdom as well. So all this was out in the open. A lot of it had already been known. It just hadn't been formalized So what the Mossad did was they lured Venunu away from London to Rome, and it was at this point that they kidnapped him, put him on an El Al flight back to Israel, and he was in prison for a number of years in Israel, where he says his treatment was harsh due to the fact that it was known he had abandoned Judaism and converted to Christianity. And I'd already mentioned, too, as well, the whole issue of Stuxnet and Mossad's role in that, there's actually believe it or not an article on a abc news um, site <clears throat> the title of it is edward snowden us israel uh, co-wrote pardon me let me say that again edward snowden us israel co-wrote cyber superweapon stuxnet so there's more confirmation of a you know joint operation between the cia and israel there one of the a couple of the big questions on Stuxnet, one of them is that we've seen it already pop up in one Western corporation. But there is the question, and I'm not sure how well informed it's it's driven by. But there is some speculation that the massive failure of backup systems at the Fukushima nuclear react power plant were due to Stuxnet, either inadvertently or advertently. Um, was this true? I don't know. I mean, the fact that you can ask the question and that Israel's is so evil that uh, it's you know believable that they could do it um, says a lot about them. Ultimately, I think Mossad would have no problem in engaging in nuclear terrorism against the U.S. or anyone if they think that it would it you know, would benefit them. That to to them we are Goyim, we are scum, and you know what's the death of a couple of million uh, Americans if it benefits the Israeli state? They have their fanatical Holocaust uh, views of the manufactured six million term. And they think if anything remotely looks like a future Holocaust, hey, they'd take the world down. Uh, That's why one of the books that I'll mention here, but it's named the Samson option. Well, we all know how Samson destroyed um, the temple he was standing under by forcing out the pillars, which killed him. Well, if the Israel... Feels pressed, and they plan on taking the world down with them. Um, The the Israeli version of the National Security Agency is called a Unit 8200, and like the National Security Agency, Unit 8200 operates under uh, a military guise, and of course, in this case, is the Israeli Defense Force. Uh, Many of a Unit 8200's alumni have created Israeli telecommunication equipment firms, including NARUS, Varant and Amdocs. Unfortunately, all three of those firms make equipment that the National Security Agency really, really likes. And so I believe the um, incident in San Francisco at Room 641A, where the NSA was eavesdropping on fiber optic communications, I believe that Maris and Verant both had equipment there for for spying, and of course the you know the Jews are natural spies, and it's only odd you know uh, it's only to be expected that they would make equipment that would be good at that. Uh, articles and books that I think are um important about the about the Jewish issue. Uh, first article is Shady Companies with Ties to Israel Wiretap the U.S. for the NSA. Uh, This is another great James Banford article appearing in Wired Magazine's website. Uh, The title, again, is Shady Companies with Ties to Israel, Wiretap the USA for the NSA. Uh, Another article, Does Israel Have a Backdoor to U.S. Intelligence? written by Steve Saylor, and this was on uh, Mag's website. This dealt more, I think, with the uh, Israeli firm called Amdocs, and it's a question of um, using metadata from phone users. Books, uh, I highly, highly recommend Gideon's Spies, The Secret History of the Mossad. is written by Gordon Thomas. Uh, just absolutely excellent. Uh, Seymour Hersh's book about Israel's nuclear weapons program, which also deals with Mossad in part, called The, the Samson Option. I can't uh, recommend that enough. I previously mentioned that James Banford's Body of Secrets has a great in-depth chapter about the USS Liberty uh, and Israel's role in attacking it, and the last book would be um, By Way of Deception by Victor Ostrovsky, who was a former Mossad case officer, and he actually developed some problems with Mossad's ruthlessness, so he quit working for the agency and moved to um, Arizona, I believe. and. He wrote a second book um, titled similar to By Way of Deception that deals um with more aspects of the Mossad. So, I, it, unfortunately, you know, they're probably our greatest threat in terms of a security ag- uh, intel agency that exists upon the world right now.
0: Well, it, at least they're God's people, so we can trust them not to do anything unethical.
1: Of course not, because they believe in the Old Testament, don't you know?
0: Yeah, um, wasn't Jesus a Jew?
1: Yeah, had to have been because that's what uh, the evangelical big box Bible church I go to told me.
0: Amen. <laughs> <laughs> that's the end of it.
1: Well, I'm looking at the time here, and I mean, unfortunately, I have not been able to touch on the Special Operations Forces at yeah. all or the solutions. I'm I'm just now um, um almost at the end of part one. Yeah, <laughs> it's I, been two I think it. Uh, if you could spare me about it, two more minutes, I can finish part one.
0: Sure. And are, are we thinking reschedule for two and three?
1: Oh yeah. Cause it's already written yeah. I mean, it's good to go right now. It's just, at this rate, I, I think it'd probably take me another two hours yeah. or, uh, maybe two so. and a half hours to cover the rest of it.
0: Yeah. Let's go ahead and finish up part one and you and I can talk offline about, uh, scheduling you to come back rather shortly.
1: Okay. Um, there are uh, private intelligence efforts that go on that are separate from nation states. There are, uh, first there's kind of a hybrid intel groups which are uh, real pro-government but still kind of private. The Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center both should be considered intel units that they both uh, gather files and data on people they consider to be threats which uh I mean, people like you and I would you know, would fit that bill but they really should be considered uh intel agencies. I believe both of them receive certain amount of government funding. I'm not completely sure on that. Uh but they receive a lot of funds from scared Jews, um, particularly the ADL, the uh, leader of it, Abraham Foxman, just says, oh, anti-Semitism's on the rise, and the Jews break out their checkbooks and start sending them money. There's also, I believe this was part out of um, Bill Clinton's increasing the police state in America during his administration, that you saw the rise of these fusion centers. And I believe you had kind of a a partial private sector hybridization with them that would would send uh, intel on the local level um, to who were people who were hostile to law enforcement. I can't really name anyone specific. I I think that the ADL and and Southern Poverty Law Center would both fit kind of under that aegis as well. But then you know, just purely pure private intelligence organizations, uh, Stratford, That's S-T-R-A-T-F-O-R. Stratford was definitely a private intel group. Soldier of Fortune magazine, man, the amount of scoops that magazine used to get. The first Soviet 5.45-millimeter ammunition that ever found its way into the West came via Soldier of Fortune magazine, as well as the first Soviet rifle to fire that ammunition, which was the AKS-74. Um, I mean, this was such a huge coup. It didn't come uh, from U- the UK's SIS or America's CIA. You know, no, it was a magazine. But due to the uh, number of of mercs or mercenaries and former Vietnam veterans and combat journalists that were uh, connected to Soldier Fortune, they had an amazing network. And uh, at one time in the Cold War, the CIA's main headquarters in Langley, Virginia, had a subscription, had at least three subscriptions for their libraries uh, to Soldier Fortune magazine. Uh, the John Birch Society, back when it was a more formidable organization, would have been considered a, a private intel group. They produced a four volume set called Bi- the Biographical Dictionary, of The American Left, which was just a phenomenal resource. Uh, and unfortunately, it's very old at this point, and almost everyone on it is dead. But it was kind of the, you know, the right-wing conservative libertarian version of what the A.D.L. and the Southern Poverty Law Center does. Where it was a listing of all these different people on the American left, and it was like an encyclopedia entry on them. Uh, operating out of the United Kingdom was. Christopher Story's old Soviet analyst newsletter, and that was back when uh, Mr. Story is unfortunately deceased. But he uh, he had acquired a, a number of contacts at European intelligence agencies and was doing very original analysis, I thought, on the Soviet issue. The the Roman Catholic Church too is is an intelligence agency as well, and it's not really talked about much, but where there was information, say in, during the Cold War, that in Poland that was passed out um, to the West via the Catholic Church, and that's—I uh, generally don't like large, structured churches like that. But this was one good thing that came out of it, and I think that in creating a, a confederation of churches that this should be something that should be aspired for is, is uh, not just ecclesiastical intelligence, but sometimes it might be the only way to get good intel out of an area is via a church. Plus, you've seen individual writers and academics and journalists who have uh, who've done just really stunning uh, in, intelligence work themselves. I'm thinking here of a, a man named Edward Lucas, who spent four years in the Moscow Bureau of the Economist, He wrote a book which serves as an example, I think, of excellent intel gathering by a journalist. His book was called "Deception: The Untold Story of East-West Espionage." Today, he's a bit of a neocon, but even still, reading his book in light of that, I mean, this was a, you know, a very in-depth piece of of intel analysis on um, modern Russia that you're not going to see coming out of the likes of the CIA or or the SIS. So when people think of like, oh, well, the only Intel agencies or government, nature like no, the private sector can produce this kind of information, although frequently it's lacking in the vision to do so. But it, it has existed in the past and still, even to this day, exists in some form or fashion. Oh, there was another magazine I forgot to mention Aviation Week and Space Technology, and a uh, UK publisher called Janes. That Janes produces these uh, massive, in depth um, books on military hardware worldwide. And I don't know who they have for sources, but uh they've had quite a few scoops themselves. They are a private outfit and almost um uh, I can guarantee you almost any war college uh worth its weight or, or intelligence agency is going to have a full subscription to all of Jane's publications. But I think that wraps up the uh private intel efforts in part one, the uh the intelligence community Once again, I apologize for I was hoping to cover all this, but uh, you do not know how many pages I left out of what I I mentioned tonight. I probably got 10 single space pages I did not include in this. This was kind of the bare bones treatment.
0: Uh, Yeah, I can believe it. This is (laughs) it's a ton of information.
1: You have just enough now to be dangerous.
0: Exactly. I do want to give you ask one question before we wrap up here. It's from the okay. chat, chat room. Do you have any thoughts on the recent interest in chipping? Chipping people, microchips.
1: Oh, um, well, I'm opposed to it, of course. Um, in terms of its ultimate goal, well, I think it's probably to. It's one way is um there'll be the obvious method is to try to keep records on them which will aid uh, law enforcement tyranny of being able to pull up all their data if they capture them all at once. But also as well it can be used as a, a means of consolidating payments under uh, one structure of, you know, where you have to have the, you know, the mark of the beast in effect to make any sort of, of uh, purchases or exchanges which would be utterly disastrous. It would be a bit more harder to track people like that. You would have, um, because shipping people, it's not like in the movies where you can be out in the middle of nowhere and they're going to be able to see you with a, an RFID, um a chip inside of you. That you'd have to have a lot of, uh, a lot of sensor nodes to make that work. But this is becoming more and more of a possibility too. So, Let's say you walk into your grocery store. Well, they got an RFID reader there. So all of a sudden, um, everyone who has RFID inside a grocery store, their whereabouts is known. Then you have another one at a gas station. So it can be done in that way, but it's not like you're going to have a spy satellite that sits above America and knows where everyone is at all of a sudden. It would be having decentralized, discrete nodes that would pick that up. Basically, um, you can count on human beings to do their worst. So the sky is really the upper limit on where um, we're putting RFID chips and people can go. It, would, of course, is being used right now with with small children saying, if, well, okay, if a baby's lost, a baby can't tell you where it lives at or who its parents is, who its parents are. So it sounds very innocuous and safe. But of course that will be used to you know push more and more things like, Oh, wouldn't it be great if you had all your medical data on you so in case if you were hit by a car and you couldn't talk that we would know that data. And I mean a certain amount of that's even true. I just I I know what it's being used as a foothold though, to do worse and worse things. Eventually you'd probably see you know, criminal records or well this person is a is a hate crime being embedded in that. And then ultimately, I would think probably the ultimate thing is to be able to do uh, some sort of uh, full-scale tracking on 85 to 90% of the population. If if it weren't for the fact that economically, I think we're going to melt down a lot sooner, than that would become reality. I do think that that would be a goal that eventually um, the cryptocracy and just the status would push for is to have everyone with an RFID chip. It's a natural conclusion to me of of Obamacare in many ways, where yeah. Obamacare centralizes medical record keeping, and so you take that one step further with RFID. The technology is increasingly to the point. I mean, it may already be there in terms of small size memory, where you could put a, a capsule-sized module into a person's arm and have, say, uh, you know, 100 megabytes or you know, 20 megabytes of data. Which could tell a whole heck of a lot about a person um, in the course of his life. Plus, you could have it where, just as you you have to go in to update your your driver's license periodically or renew it, well, have a once or once every two year event Mm -hmm. where you go in and you have your latest records uploaded or downloaded. It's um, you know people reject the sovereignty of God; they tend to put the sovereignty of state of the state in its place. And so you have these growing god states that are just becoming worse and worse. And, um, yeah, if if there's no economic meltdown or something like a nuclear war or a meteor strike, I would utterly fear where this would go. Because right now there's just, uh, there's
2: the remnant has
1: been growing probably for about the past 30 years or so, but unfortunately the non-remnant has got a lot more evil in that time. And then you have just kind of the people who don't identify, who are not a part of the epistemologically, uh, or at least the kind of somewhat self-aware evil folks, or the remnant, just the people like you said, the water cooler types that sit around talking about NFL football. You know, they're going to go whatever way the news media tells them to. So I guess that would be my basic thought on it.
0: Great information. So two hours. We've done two hours of intelligence groups and special operation forces and, and well, no, so I'm sorry, on the
1: special operations forces. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah,
0: we, we did not get into that. So that will be for next time we'll do we will do special operations forces and then the theolo- yeah, theology and critique.
1: And I've got a lot, I think, of of good original material in the theological. Critique. Yeah. It's a high-level stuff. It's not. It's like saying things like, "Well, force the U.S. Army to repeal its ban on this." No, I mean it's it's yeah. much more uh, broad, deep thrashing of society. Although I do include some minor, minor tweaks on the critique. You know, yeah. it's always nice to try to posit solutions to any kind of problem you have. But like I said, folks, I've already gotten every bit of that written.
2: It's,
0: good. It's
1: good to go. Uh, I just didn't know how long it was going to take me to go through this.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it'd be, it's a pretty good sign to wrap up when the chat room has resorted to uh, comparing gay slurs. <laughs> 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 some uh, some some pretty clever ones in there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sounds like fun.
0: Yeah, fun times. It's see September seventh, I believe, is the next show, and Tim Harris of Butler Dash Harris. Dot .org I believe that's the the website. We'll be on to talk about the Holy Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic Church, but in his view, what is the true church? We'll talk about what our obligations to that are and we'll of course critique it. So that that should be a fun show. And that's September 7th and I can't think of anything else. Robert, thanks so much for all the work you've done. I've 50 pages of this is incredible preparation. So I'm <laughs> I'm really grateful for that.
1: It turned out being, um, if you use 12 point type and one inch margins, which is the standard I use for writing with, it was 35 pages, you know, single space right. form. And we covered, um, well, quite a bit of that tonight.
0: So. I told the, I told the people in the chat room who were impressed with the conversation that I would sell them a copy of your outline for five bucks a piece. <laughs> 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 That's the Jewish gotta way gotta get that Jew thing going <laughs> in, <you know. laughs> Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll wrap up here and, no, we're good. I was going to play the, exo- the exit music because you got to have that sound effect, right?
1: I know it. That's right. And then come back with some more uh, Gilbert go. version of the uh, Viking Kong.
0: We'll see you next time, people.